Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. From Business Insider, this is Success. I'm Rich Filoni. Yardley Smith has made millions of dollars as the voice of Lisa Simpson. Bart, having never received any words of encouragement myself, I'm not sure how they're supposed to sound. But here goes. I believe in you. She's won an Emmy, starred in her own one-woman show, published a book, and even started a podcast. But for a long time, those achievements didn't feel like enough. I think part of being a control freak and also suffering from perfectionism is that you attach to these very rigid rules of what your success should look like. So it doesn't allow for what your success actually looks like. You miss your own successes because you are merely focused on what is not yet done. It's taken Yardley Smith more than 40 years to define success. It's a bar she's been raising for herself since the beginning of her career. So I had started working professionally. I got out of high school when I was 17, just about to turn 18. And so for the first nine years, I was on, it was like being on a rocket ship in terms of my work. And I just worked nonstop. And it was going exactly the way I planned in my head when I was five. And (laughs) What's that look like then? It was incredible. And although I do remember having a moment when I was 20 years old thinking, so I'd been on Broadway. I didn't go to drama school and I hadn't gotten into college. And so I had managed to right out of high school, get an acting job that led to two more acting jobs that led to a New York agent that led to an audition with Mike Nichols after being in New York for six weeks that led to a job on Broadway. And so that, you know, that doesn't happen to everybody. And I recognize that. And so I do remember being 20 years old and thinking, well, I don't know how you're going to sustain this trajectory, but you'd better because in a couple of years, people will expect you to have accomplished all that you have already accomplished. So you better figure that out. And, you know, that's a really high and sobering bar to touch. And also, I don't know how you control that. So is that kind of like saying that what you're proud of now, people are just going to expect from you? Yes, that is exactly what that's like. Can you take me to where you were in your career in 1987 when you got this role for... Lisa Simpson, it was just a short in the Tracy Ullman show? Yes, I was. I had just come to Los Angeles. I think I'd been in Los Angeles for a year. 
and uh, I was doing a lot of television. I'd come out to do a pilot. Pilot didn't go to series, which was great because it was not a good pilot. <laughs> <laughs> and um, but I had already started working. Like I did a guest spot on Murphy Brown. I did a guest spot on Empty Nest. It, you know, depending on how old you are, you know what those references are. And I was also doing some theater in Los Angeles, and which is a very, very, very different scene than it is in New York. And they have this thing in LA theater called Equity Waiver. Now, back in the day, back in 1986, when I was doing theater. They literally could pay you zero. So it was for free. So you free. just get nothing. Nothing. And it was, I mean, some of the work was good, but it also always had this overtone of having this ulterior motive that, oh, some important producer or casting director will come see me and then I'll get catapulted to something else. So I was doing this play that literally I think 17 people saw. And one of those people a year later would cast The Simpsons on The Tracy Ullman Show. And when I was asked to audition for The Simpsons, I was brought in to read for Bart. And then I read for Lisa because, of course, I sound exactly like a girl. I sound nothing like a boy. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, it, and now, of course, that's this sort of this amazing story like, oh, my God, you read for Bart and Nancy read for Lisa. Nancy, who does Bart Simpson. But it wasn't that orchestrated. I honestly think it was just a lot of really creative spaghetti against the wall. I think it was just like, we always have women do the voices of young boys. There are two women here. We were there on the same day. Both of y'all should read for Bart. Doesn't matter. Who cares? You know, it wasn't like you, Yardley, you seem like you'd be right for Bart. It was just, you're here first, you read for Bart. So it was less calculated than it sounds. Had you ever done any voice acting before? No. And I had no, I didn't have a voiceover agent. I, it came through my theatrical agent. I didn't want to do voiceover. Um, I did not want to do voiceover, but it certainly wasn't part of my uh, plan for world domination. It was not. I was like, I, whatever. Okay. So just doing this, this was like, all right, I'll just do it. Yes, no because I wasn't an actor who said no to auditions. I was um, rapaciously ambitious. I was, I really went on everything for the most part, unless it was terrible. And this wasn't terrible by any means. I just was like, I just didn't see how voiceover was going to sort of get me over the next goal line. So then how did you feel when that just like a, a segment on a show ended up getting its own TV deal two years after that? I mean, I was excited because in show business, it's so rare for an actor to have a job that lasts longer than a week. For that to parlay into a half-hour series seemed pretty extraordinary. And then, of course, but Fox was still a very new network, and they didn't really have anything. It so. had just come out, right? Yeah. So they were like, well, that's all well and good, but you know the network is never going to last because, at the very least, the big three, ABC, NBC, and CBS, are not going to let it last. They're going to gobble it up. They're going to cannibalize it. So that's nice for you. Enjoy the ride. You're 13 episodes, but then it'll fade away. Nobody will remember it, and live and be well. There wasn't a whole lot of promise. It wasn't like, you know, huzzah. And then we hit so big. And then it was the turnaround was immediate. The show business community was all of a sudden like, oh, my God, we knew it all along. And I was like. Okay. Yeah, they always do. Like in yeah, retrospect. Yeah. yeah. And they have no shame about it. There's something <laughs> sort of um, extraordinary and fantastic about that if you can find the humor in it. <laughs> <laughs> so was your you were dedicating more and more time to the series as opposed to the other jobs that you were working no, on? No, it was still, uh, we would go in to, it. you know, recording The Simpsons was one day a week. 
And I was still auditioning a lot for on-camera stuff. My on-camera career was still really robust. I was still doing movies and doing television. At the time that The Simpsons spun off into Half Hour, I got a series called Herman's Head, which uh, Hank Azaria was also on. And so Hank Azaria. Who does Apu and Chief Wiggum and... Uh, Snake and uh, whole bunch of characters. A whole bunch. Yeah. Like he's brilliant. He's so, so funny. You know, I thought, oh my God, it doesn't get any better than this. And then when both shows were airing, I was on the Fox network on the same night on two different shows an hour apart. And so I was like, I'm living the dream, dude. It does. I mean, seriously. And then Herman's Head got canceled after three seasons. And my character had actually been quite popular, what we call in show business a breakout character. And I thought, this is really good. I'll for sure get another series. And I didn't. And then Herman's Head was canceled. Like I said, I still had The Simpsons. And then things started to slow down on camera. And I actually think, in retrospect, I think it was many things. I think it was sort of the perfect storm and a confluence of many events and nobody's fault. But I also think part of the downside of being so successful at such a young age, it was, I liken it to sort of having built a house without any foundation. So it wasn't that I didn't have to work hard. It's that opportunities presented themselves and I was able to seize the opportunity, but I didn't have to find the opportunity. So when the opportunity stopped presenting itself, then I didn't know what to do. So you felt like you weren't working for it? It was just coming to you? No, no. No? I felt like I had a, an agent who was able to find the opportunities and maybe the opportunities because, again, while my you know contemporaries were in drama school or were in college, I was out working, right? And so when that that sort of equation started to even out. And now we were all, the, le- the playing field was leveling out. Now I didn't have the advantage so much. And we had movie stars who were now willing to do television. Television had really been sort of my wheelhouse. So when that started to happen, then the people who used to star in television were now going to start to play the best friend. I had always played the best friend. So it, now I was going to play the friend of the friend, if there was a friend of the friend. And so, again, that's nobody's fault. That's just the pecking order, right? That's the food chain. And so if my agent and or producers weren't going to think of me first or second for those supporting roles, then I didn't know how to fill in those gaps is what I'm saying. I I just had never – I had never had to create work for myself and I didn't know how to do it. And at that time, too, I would say, so this was would have been like mid-90s. It also became sort of de rigueur for you to have to be a multi-hyphenate. So you couldn't, it was less good for you to be just an actor. It was better if you were actor-writer, actor-producer, actor-writer-producer, actor-writer-director-producer. And I didn't want to be any of those things. You I didn't wanted, want that. Yeah. I just wanted to be an actor. I was like, that's what I'm good at. I want to stay in my lane. And that was... I think that was probably not my best move. I was very slow to the party. I kept thinking like, oh, but you know, Darwin has a thing like adapt (laughs) or die. And I was like, oh God. As as you were feeling like all of this like conflict though, wasn't in the meantime, the Simpsons becoming like a phenomenon basically? Yes. And it was. And I think, 
you know, one of the things I, I learned the hard way was having known from such a young age that I wanted to be an actress, I also formed a vision of what that success looked like from a very, very, very young age, like literally seven. And then the folly was that I attached my measure of success to that actual vision. So what did that look like? So it looked like, you know, I will be in the biggest movies and I will be a massive star and I will have, you know, the pick of the roles and I'll win all of the awards. And of course, that's how it will go. And why not? Because I don't know. I mean, everybody said, of course, it won't work that way. And I thought, well, what do you know? But that's just the dream. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so the problem, though, and the, and I think part of being a control freak and also suffering from perfectionism is that you attach to these very rigid rules of what your success should look like. So it doesn't allow for what your success actually looks like, right? And if you can't sort of bend like a reed, right, in the river, then you become quite brittle. And two things happen. One, you miss your own successes because you are merely focused on what is not yet done. So you literally, like, I remember winning the Emmy in 1992 for my work on The Simpsons. It was the very first year that an Emmy was given for voiceover, the first year that the category was eligible. And six of us won that year. It was a juried award, which meant that more than one person could win. My Emmy sat in the closet for nine years. Really? Yeah. Because that the following week, I went to the televised Emmys because the voiceover Emmy still to this day is given what they call the Creative Arts Awards. And that is the non-televised Emmys. And it happens... At, at this point, it happens a week before. Yeah, right? they show like a quick montage yes. during that. Yeah. And so when I went down the red carpet at the televised awards, nobody asked me what it was like to win an Emmy the, the week before because, of course, nobody knew. And so in my, you know, little mind, I was like, oh, I guess my Emmy doesn't matter because nobody asked me about it. So I stuck it in the closet for nine years. So you had actually accomplished something yes. really cool and you're like, I, I don't it care. It doesn't this matter is, because yeah. my the value of that was predicated on somebody else recognizing what the value of that was. And so, you know, it's such a, it, you know, when I step outside of me and I look at that younger Yardley and I think that it's a heartbreaking story that you would not be able to enjoy that and that it took you so long. And as I only tell that story as a cautionary tale, not for anybody to feel sorry for me, but as if there's anybody out there who's even thinking that they would go down that road, please, please, please don't, because you'll miss so much. I just feel like when you attach to a very specific, rigid idea of what you think your success should look like, you will get the short end of your own stick. And you can still maintain that ambition Absolutely. while still appreciating what you've 100%. got. percent. It does not in any way, shape, or form infringe on your ambition or your ability to set the bar higher and yet higher and yet higher and touch the bar. Swing from the bar, for God's sake. Like, oh my God, you can, you know, continue to raise the limit. It is, but it really, and it's such a cliche, but try to enjoy the journey along the way because it's kind of all you have, Right. And I remember somebody asked me in an interview 
a year ago or so, and, and I was embarrassed, actually, that they said this, where they said, I know you used to not really appreciate Lisa Simpson and used to sort of discount it, and a little bit to your point a few minutes ago about, but The Simpsons was blowing up. Didn't you appreciate that? And and I think because I had always been teased for how funny and weird and nasally my voice is, and the fact that voiceover had never been on my radar as part of how I was going to achieve my world domination and my success, that I really... I didn't give it the gravity and the weight and the honor that it deserved for a great many years, right? Because I was like, but no, 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 you don't understand. It wasn't on the, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't on the on list. The list. <laughs> Yardley, you're a ninny yeah. and you might want to walk that back. So, um, you know, look, I'm a slow learner, but God damn it. Finally, I get it. So. Finally, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Well, so I remember in... I think it was 1998 when there was uh, a strike among voice actors. Fox was even threatening to replace yes, the yes, cast. Yes, they did, th- they did threaten to replace us. Was that kind of a recognition for this is something I could be proud of? I can stand up for myself here for the work that I'm putting out? I don't know that I married those two things together at that time. I actually don't remember the moment where I realized... This is something valuable. I, I certainly never questioned my desire to throw in with my fellow castmates and, and stand in solidarity with them for this fight. You know, when Fox was saying nobody recognize, nobody knows who you guys are, so we can easily replace you because nobody sees your faces. And... I've now gone on the record and said in the last several years, you know, when you have a lot of celebrities doing animated films and it's great, I think the only thing I take exception to is if any of those celebrities who are doing those animated films feel like they're just slumming it because somehow doing animation is a lesser form of acting. That's the only thing I take exception to because I don't think it's true. Is that what you had once thought? But when you're saying um, that starting yes, out? Probably, I mean, I think while I was doing it, I didn't feel in any way, shape or form that I was phoning it in doing Lisa Simpson. But I think if you had said to me, Yardley, you're going to make your fortune and your legacy will be doing an eight year old for most of your career. And that's going to, you know, resonate for generations um, ever after. I would have thought, oh, that's not how I want to be remembered. I, of course, no longer feel that way, but it is. it was probably a, an interesting, would that be a dichotomy where, on the one hand, the opinion didn't actually match the action and, and the way I was actually treating the job? When I would go and do Lisa Simpson, I give you everything I have, and I love that girl. But if you'd ask me how I like doing voiceover, I think perhaps I would have sort of thought, oh, I don't know, voiceover. I would not perhaps have thought it was something that I could have hung my lifelong career hat on. What compelled you to do your one-woman show more in 2004? It's very revealing. Like, you really put a lot of yourself out there. I did. I I did it because I wasn't getting any work. And And that was part of the, okay, well, now you have to figure out how to create work for yourself. So... Per usual, I was like, all right, go big or go home. And I really threw all in. But it got very mixed reviews. And we did get a really wonderful review from the New York Times, but it was too late. 
and the so in this in the show you're you're like sharing your life story basically and and, all the good and bad and it was for me again i was trying to convey this cautionary tale which was you can't fill up the inside from the outside which is what i felt i had tried to do my entire life which was okay if I can just get more successful, if I can get more famous, then whatever this sort of gnawing deficit I feel like I have inside that I felt like I've had all my life, maybe that will work. Guess what? It never works, right? Whatever, and it's such a cliche, again, where you hear a celebrity say, oh my God, I just thought, you know, if I can get the world to love me, then I'll love myself. You can't reverse engineer it. You just can't. And so I think, obviously, because it was the play was often misunderstood by critics, I must not have said it very well. But that was ultimately what I was trying to get across. Did you still have those, like, kind of that inner conflict inside you even after that show? Sure. And I liken it sometimes to uh, sort of back to the perfectionist struggle. So I'm 54 now, and I think... When I think about perfectionism, and I've had it all my life, I've now sort of come to regard it much like addiction. And depending on how young it strikes you and how um, strongly it grips you by the throat, you will it, it will dictate how much you end up having to grapple with it throughout your life. So, and it, I do think as with all things, it has an ebb and a flow. But for instance, I have, so I have this podcast, right? This true crime podcast called Small Town Dicks. And I've been doing a lot of press for that. And I've also been trying to up my social media game because now in this new world, it really counts how many followers and likes you get in terms like that's currency. Got in some our, good videos. In yeah. our modern Simpsons world. Sundays. Thank yeah. you. Yes, I'm <laughs> trying to do a thing here, people. Um, but I will tell you that there's also something quite vulnerable about putting yourself out in the world, like professional. Perfectionism and vulnerability are like oil and water. They do not go together. So that has been a really interesting, introspective journey for me. And I think it has sort of made some of those old doubts about are you good enough bubble up that I have sort of had, have bubbled either very much on the surface and sometimes more under the surface all my life. So that's interesting. So like when I see like those videos that I'm talking about that you'll post on Twitter where whether it's you meeting up with a guy in New York with his pug. His pug. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what was that? You? It was just a, a fan that mm-hmm. recognized you and you. Yeah, yeah I was walking by um, and he tweeted, uh, oh my God, I just walked by Yardley Smith who does the voice of Lisa Simpson. I wanted to say hi, but I was too shy and I was going to the barbershop. And so I tweeted him back and said, dude, you should have said hi. I don't bite, at least not that hard. And he said, well, I live just around the corner if you want to meet up. I could bring my wife and my dog. And I was like, all right, meet me in the lobby. And there is, you know, as much of a scaredy cat as I am, and I really <laughs> am a scaredy cat, I just sort of have this overabundance of courage. I'm, I'm not a fearless human at all, despite the fact that I'm oddly risk averse. I just, I do those things. But it's funny when, when you say that you still deal with this and sometimes it, it bubbles up even recently. When I see something like that, uh, I don't get that impression at all. Is uh, Right. How's that work? Well, 
it's because there's a bigger part of me, I think, that if if I live in the same, if I live in a house with self-doubt, you know, fuck you, you will not own me. So, all right, you can live in my neighborhood, but you will not own me. So, I don't know. I, it doesn't mean, though, that I don't go meet Jay and his pug, Rico, and his lovely wife, Betsy, and then put together the video and put it out and go, does anybody care about this? This is so dumb. And not because of him, but because of me, right? Where people Just being go, silly. Yeah, yeah, right? And so at every turn, I think there's an opportunity to go to sort of say well that was stupid and you just i mean i guess if you gave into that every t- you'd never do anything <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so just go for it you kind of yeah. i mean kind of sort of and 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 also i always try to lead with kindness and when i post my simpson sunday videos i really i want to tell you something that you hopefully don't know about the show or something that you don't know about me in the way I address my character. Or, you know, again, if I can give you a minute on your Sunday that made you smile, it's a win. It's win, win, win. That's all I'm trying to do. That's it. It's pretty simple. So, And so, yeah, I mean, The Simpsons hit 30 seasons. It's now the longest running... Everything. Primetime, yeah, the longest running <laughs> show in like American history, primetime show... Yes, the longest running primetime show because I think 60 Minutes has been on for, you know, 150 years. Okay, so next to 60 Minutes, yeah. yeah, yeah. But but, I mean, so that's like a a major accomplishment. And I feel like that's something that, like you're saying, that this is, you're you're proud of it and you embrace it. When did that evolve to this is something, oh, I'm not fulfilling my dream to? No, this is something that is something I should really be proud of. I think probably about 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I at least. So around the time of your one person show. Yes, I think, you know, when I realized, you know, I so I did the one woman show, it did not get me any work the way I thought that it should. Like I created that show. It was a really interesting and grueling and phenomenal creative endeavor. And I also had a very specific plan for it. That plan didn't work out. And so for a number of years in my head, it was a failure. Did it at least help you understand more of yourself? Perhaps, but that was uninteresting to me. It didn't even matter. If... It didn't matter to me because that wasn't the goal. Mm-hmm. The goal was... So you were still trapped in that even though yes. you, you were telling everyone in the audience... Yes. Uh, this is yes. w- this is my burden. I can't That's do it. What I'm saying, and even Rich, with that, I couldn't even take yeah. my own medicine. <laughs> I'm like, and again, I'm like, don't be like me. Yeah. Do something else. <laughs> oh God, oh God. Um, I'm not a very good student. I'm <laughs> a little thick. Um, yes, I mean, it was a really, it was really tough. And people ask me, you know, would you ever do it again? And and the answer is no. Um, I certainly wouldn't do it like that. And then after that, actually. I think after that, I fired my agent that I'd had for 22 years. And I couldn't get an agent because I wasn't willing to give up Simpsons money to somebody new who hadn't actually done anything yet. And they were all like, well, screw you. (laughs) So I was like, all right, well, screw you. 
And so I then sort of noodled around for a while. And I started, I decided I would take a writing class from a woman who lived, you know, in my neighborhood. And she taught a class in the evenings. And I went and I ended up writing a novel out of that. And it started as these little vignettes about Lorelai, who's 11 years old, who had this really cockeyed, very funny view of the world. And I strung them together, and it became this book called I, Lorelai, which HarperCollins published in 2009. And it was a beautifully reviewed book, and it was not a commercial success because the publishing game is a racket and extraordinarily hard. But, but, this will make you happy. <laughs> it was at least the book I really wanted to write. And um, at the end of the day, even though it wasn't a commercial success, it is a book that I feel like I'm really glad my name is on. And so... You allowed yourself to be happy about yes, it? Yes, yes. And so that whole journey probably took about three years where I didn't have an agent. And the beauty of that whole sort of little denouement was that I realized that I could my creativity wasn't just about show business that I could perhaps do other things and um, that was really important for me because I think I felt like I didn't have any skills really (laughs) you know I didn't have a college education I was like oh shit oh fuck what now what am I gonna do (laughs) well along that way did you allow yourself to have ownership of Lisa Simpson as a character, which was known globally and like incredibly iconic? Yes. You know, I did come to my senses. And and I do think that actually that transformation took place privately long before it took place publicly. You know, I've, I grew up in a, a household where we don't toot our own horn. It was a pretty, a quite formal upbringing. And so, you know, praise, I would say, was more implied than it was sort of lavished upon us. So I just, I wasn't in the practice of sort of blowing my own horn. And so I, if there were victories, I kept them close. And then on just even the the practical side of things too, how did you keep a project that you've been working on for more than 30 years fresh, even as you're doing other things as well? Well, that's easy because for Lisa Simpson, the words change every week. So it's not like doing Cats for 30 years on Broadway (laughs) where the words are the same. You have to sing the same songs, you know. Her storyline is different every time we do an episode. So that's pretty easy. And at the same time, the character is so familiar and... I love her so much that it's like going to visit an old friend every time I drop into those pages. So that's a real treat. And you've been working with some of the same people for that same time as yes. well. What does that like? How does that kind of relationship build over such a long period of time? Does it help with the the performance? Obviously, I think we know each other's rhythms and we actually don't socialize together outside of our work. But there really is the deepest, most profound love and respect for what each person brings to their work, to that process. I So I stand between Dan and Nancy. And to see Dan go from voice to voice to voice 
from, you know, Grandpa to Homer to Groundskeeper Willie. I could watch it all day long, seven days a week. It never gets old. To see Nancy go from Bart to Nelson to Ralph, same thing, all day long. To act with Dan and Nancy and Julie and Tress and it never, I just, I mean, it is pure joy. So I wish that they allowed cameras in that room because if you just want to show people like, this is my job, people. Come on, I come to work and I make silly noises and then I sound like an eight-year-old and I say stupid things and we do this four times each take. And if it's still not right, we do it again. I mean, really? (laughs) I don't know. I don't know what I did in another life to be able to show up to get to do this. So at this point, like talking about the this whole kind of evolution of your career are you still do you still have some of those doubts or feeling pigeonholed by the Simpsons or any of that does that still bother you I think you know I don't know that I ever felt pigeonholed by the Simpsons as much as I felt pigeonholed in general because that's just what show business does they like to go oh you're good at that you do comedy that's what you do and they don't like to give you a chance to do something else because it's just easier if you'll just if you'll kindly stay in that box if you just stay in your lane then we can just we can do that right so at this point have you finally found some peace ah such a that's a big question yes i have intermittent peace intermittent peace <laughs> so it's an imp- it's an improvement it's a vast improvement <laughs> you know i think peace is a work in progress i think some people never worry i think there are people who are masters at living in the moment and I envy them. And I just was never wired that way. Even as a kid, you know, I was a terrible worrier. How are you a worrier at five? I don't know. But I think you come out that way. You're like fully baked. So how do you define success at this point? I do think that success as well as failure is a matter of perception. And some days I feel successful and some days I feel successful but not successful enough. I just think it's fluid, you know, much like the peace thing, where sometimes you wake up and you go, fuck yeah, it's going to be a good day, right? Like I saw a guy here in New York who was walking to Dwayne Reed the other day, and his shirt said, make today count. I'm like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. (laughs) And then, then of course, I had anxiety, like, oh, God, what if I don't achieve that? (laughs) That guy's like positive shirt gave you an anxiety attack. (laughs) Yeah. And so I feel like, and and again, somebody else would go, dude, I'm good. You know, I got it. It already counts, right? So I think there is great value in realizing that maybe you don't have to do anything else. Maybe you just have to be. And that that doesn't mean you've dropped the bar. Well, thank you so much, Yardley. Thank you. Thanks for listening to This Is Success from Business Insider. Our show is produced by Jennifer Siegel and Sarah Wyman. Dan Bobkoff is our executive producer. I'm Rich Filoni. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know which guests you've enjoyed and who you want to hear from next. We'll be back next month with a new episode of This Is Success. But before we go, here's one more thing you might not have known about Yardley Smith. Well, I could tell you that I'm obsessed with oral hygiene. 
I have the Oral-B um, electric toothbrush, but what you really don't know about me, that when I'm on the red carpet and I have my little evening bag, I have a little travel uh, dental floss in there as well. I was going to say that. Yeah, I use mm-hmm. those all day. No, no, not a pick. Not I have the, the actual. Oh. Mm-hmm. you got to have the full. Yeah, I'm hardcore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is hardcore. Old school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> this is Success is a production of Insider Audio. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get gig speeds powered by fiber from Cox. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Download speeds up to one gigabit per second. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply.